Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. Welcome to another episode of the Behavior Speak podcast. As always, I'm your host, Ben. Well, this is a special episode for me. I, I, as I've been doing um, the podcast, and we're into sort of the, the 20s of the episodes, I've had a great opportunity to interview a lot of folks, a lot of colleagues, a lot of a lot of friends, lots of people that I, I think are putting out some really cool research right now. Um, uh, but I, I haven't had too many opportunities to sort of interview folks that uh, whose work has you know had a lot of meaning throughout my career. I, I did one interview with uh, which we'll be releasing soon with uh, my my uh, sort of university mentor, Doctor Joe Lucician, uh, and uh, that was a really really fun interview and really neat to sort of. Um, you know, tap into you know his experiences and 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 kind of the things he was able to do over 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 the years and the research and kind of how he got to where he got. Uh, but there has always been sort of one name kind of on on my list, uh, you know, uh, that that I wanted to invite, and uh, I, I I really didn't want to sort of you know wait till I got to episode hundred to start inviting some of the you know the bigger names sort of that have have meaning to me. Um, I've been in the field for about twenty years, and and this individuals research is something I've kind of tapped into um, all the way through and and was always grateful that uh, there was someone out there kind of doing this kind of work uh, so without further ado I, I I'm really excited to welcome uh, dr uh, Dennis Reed to the podcast uh, Denny's been he's just been writing he's he's a he's a prolific researcher and he's really put out like so much cool stuff that I don't think folks are really aware of, uh, especially sort of new behavior analysts um, uh, in, in, in areas that I think are really important for us um, um, as behavior analysts. And so I really thought it was time to start to, to try to kind of disseminate some of his work to, um, to, to our audience. So, so Denny, thanks so much for being on, on the podcast with me. Well, I uh, appreciate the opportunity, Ben. Uh, I'd like to get started uh, with uh, kind of what I do with everybody uh, with kind of a, a bit of an origin story and yours might uh, 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 be a few extra minutes, which is great um, about kind of a kind of how you got into the field, some of those early days um, um, and then how you kind of got to, um, well, first off, I think kind of just training staff in general as being a real focus of a lot of your work. Well, I know there's other pieces of your work that we're going to talk about as we go on, but that seemed to be kind of one of the early um, um, areas that you kind of jumped into. So a little bit, a little bit of your story would be awesome. Okay. I'll, I'll try to keep it relatively brief. I was in uh, graduate school at Florida state university in a behavior analytic school psychology program. Um, and I was studying to be a, a school psychologist. And later, my graduate training, um, a job opportunity came up. And uh, kind of an interesting story there within behavior analysis in that Brian Awada was a year ahead of me in graduate school. And many of you all will be very familiar with, with Brian's work. Uh, he's published more in the Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis than anybody else in the history of our field. And, you know, he, he was definitely the gold standard in terms of the research on functional analysis. 
Well, Brian was getting ready to move on with his career, and he asked me, you know, if I'd be interested in taking the job he had at a state-operated residential facility. And it served people with very severe and profound intellectual and multiple disabilities. Um, I had minimal background with that population, but I was in graduate school and the money was running out and it seemed like a good opportunity. So I took the job and the job was uh, overseeing residential service um, through approximately 1,100 staff. It's a very large agency. Uh, and I was supervising the staff through the chain of command. I supervise supervisors who supervise the staff. And it, it was a different time in behavior analysis. This was in the, the early 1970s. It was an exciting time in that our Principles and procedures were just starting to be applied with people with very severe disabilities. Prior to that time, many of these individuals didn't go to school. They were considered untrainable. That was actually a classification in the United States. But we were finding that using our behavioral procedures, um, we could teach these folks to do things. Uh, some of the most rewarding experiences there were teaching people, adults, uh, to independently toilet themselves uh, within a couple of days, and they had never done that. So it was exciting to see behavior analysis being applied in different settings, including with people with intellectual and developmental disabilities. And I had been doing that with, with different populations, and now all of a sudden my role is one of supervisor. And again, to try to make a long story short, we just started finding out in the field that the same basic principles that we apply with people with special needs apply in regard to supervising staff. That's no surprise now, but kind of was back then. So in my work as supervisor, you know, we would have to deal with various issues, improving how staff interacted with clients, reducing staff absenteeism. We started applying behavioral approaches to try to do that. Uh, Correspondingly, I've always been interested in applied research, so we started researching how to, in essence, solve problems in our service delivery. And that's kind of how I got into supervision and doing research in staff training and supervision. I, you know, I took that job with very little background except having been trained in behavior analysis and been working in supervision ever since and been doing research and supervision ever since. Um, one of the things that kept me going is that, you know, my reference to how reinforcing it was to see the progress we could make with folks with intellectual disabilities by applying uh, behavioral procedures. Um, but I also found out, kind of inadvertently, you know, in the supervisory role, you can actually maximize the impact you have on people with special needs because if you can effectively train staff and supervise their performance, then they impact a lot more people, special needs than you could as an individual clinician. And so I found that quite reinforcing professionally. So I hope that gives some idea of Ben. It was actually, I, I ran on with that more than I planned, but that's my story. Don't feel like you got to cut anything short. I, th I think a, a lot of folks would be really uh, excited to sort of hear, you know, 
the the detail in these stories, especially when you sort of bring up, you know, folks like Brian Awada and kind of what they were doing in their early days. Um, I, I'm going to touch on a paper shortly here, one of, one of your early ones um, uh, that, that brings up some, some some names as well. And and you know, I think folks just 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 love kind of hearing kind of you know what folks were doing in in, in the beginning days, and, and that it wasn't all sort of um, um, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of reference um, right now <clears throat> in our field. We won't get into this too much, but around reform and whatnot, and and, and a lot of reference to the 70s, uh, where you know there was maybe more sort of you know uh, practices that that included sort of aversive consequences and punishment and the like. And 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 I think one thing that that and 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 I, and I know there's there's that, that that's a whole discussion for another time but one thing i really like is um is just looking at looking at all, all of your research from the 70s and 80s and, and none of it really kind of touches in that area and really focuses on things that i think are really relevant today and so i don't know that folks would normally think to go back to look at lo- looking at papers from the 1970s to sort of um, inform their work today but i think for a lot of the work that you you've done in staff training is is really applicable. Um, I think about. I, I realize you're kind of working in sort of an institutional setting, and I know. I think a lot of these places have, you know, closed down since then, um, 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 and so there's still some are still open, I suppose, in some places. But now, sort of that institutional environment has kind of moved to, you know, the group home kind of setting, which has sort of become the the uh, the uh, the mini institution of of, of today. Um, and again, I find that the current research on kind of staff training, what people are talking about outside of years, really seems to focus more on sort of these, you know, in clinic kind of early intervention, uh, you know, post Lovas style um, um, places really focus on kind of that level. Whereas a lot of your work has really been focused on on training folks uh, that are working with adults, um, and I think that's that's something that's really that makes your makes your work really differentiate differentiate from a lot of the other kinds of training work and kind of supervisor work. Um, so yeah, I, I, not not really a question there, but just more. I think I think some of this early early stuff that you've done, uh, you know, I, I was kind of going through it and going, you know, this this is. Um, if anyone's sort of working in sort of group home sort of contexts, um, there's just some amazing work from sort of the 70s that I think you and your team have done. Things like, you know, you did a paper comparing um, uh, staff opinions on what these folks with profound disabilities liked versus systematic assessment. It really showed that, you know, staff, what staff think that those folks like isn't necessarily accurate. Um, uh, an early training on teaching supervisors to provide feedback, uh, teaching them to provide choices, uh, uh, training foster grandparents, pyramidal training—all this stuff that I think we're 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 talking about now, um, you know, has been researched, um, you know, uh, so much by you and your team. Um, do you? Uh, Would you agree that all this, all all this kind of early research would 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 apply to kind of the smaller kind of group home context? I think a lot of folks are working in that area and not not really knowing what to do. Uh, it does apply. There, of course, have been refinements, and you know, um, 
you're absolutely right. And fortunately, the types of institutions like the one I first started working in, we don't see those anymore. I mean, there are large agencies, but um, so much progress has occurred. However, um, we actually, believe it or not, see a lot of the same issues in various types of uh, congregate care environments for people with intellectual disabilities, including autism, group homes, mm. some supported living mm -hmm. types of arrangements. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the overall environment and quality of life um, on the whole is much better, but there are still a lot of issues. How staff interact with individuals, the degree to which staff train individuals in a group home such that individuals can have more control over their own lives. Um, our research has evolved over the decades because, you know, we started working um, as the field changed in community settings. Um, a lot of our work, uh, particularly, um, oh, <laughs> in the early 21st century, um, was in supported work in community type settings, including my own company. We hired people with severe disabilities on a part-time basis. And we would use the same procedures to train their job coaches or employment specialists to help them give them a, uh, you know, a productive work life and hopefully an enjoyable work life. So in terms of whether the basic procedures are still relevant, absolutely. And in the same kinds of procedures are being researched and being applied in the staff training and supervision research today. Um, pretty much across the, the gamut of settings, whether it's supported living, group home, uh, larger scale residential day program. Um, so, you know, some of the issues are different, but the basic procedures are pretty much the same. Now there are some logistical differences and these have been highlighted um, particularly, uh, you know, over the last year and a half with the COVID pandemic, because, hmm. Our approach to supervision and a behavior analytic approach to supervision is very hands-on. You know, a supervisor has to interact with staff, has to see staff perform to be able to give nice, supportive, uh, positive feedback. Um, and that's all been hampered uh, in various degrees because of COVID-19 and not being able to lot, mm -hmm. do a lot of things in person. Um, and that's given rise to a whole new area of research and, um, that you're probably more familiar with than I am. But, you know, uh, staff training and supervision from a distance via telehealth. Um, mm -hmm. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, You'll need to know the three secret words and enter them at www.cbiconsultants.com. The first secret word is community. Yeah, no, absolutely. That that that's certainly been uh, you know uh, the focus for the last couple of years. And there's been some research on you know telehealth and training and whatnot, um, but uh, that. Uh, but yeah, you're right. It, it 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 it's a completely different ball game. But I think in the end, a, a lot of those um, sort of procedures sort of still apply, particularly in terms of you know kind of providing providing that feedback, um, which I think is is so huge. Um, one of sort sort of one of the uh, the 
the uh, the method the methods are sort of the frameworks that a lot of this 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 current training is based in and a lot of the a lot of the webinars that we're kind of seeing coming out now are is 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 behavioral skills training and um more often than not when i see a reference to behavior skills training which seems to be sort of which has really become you know uh, i think the 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 gold standard in terms of of, of training staff and training uh, line workers and training you know uh, registered behavior technicians or even training other bcbas in sort of the concept context of supervision um it, uh, it, it the 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 reed and parsons 2012 is is, is all, always seems to be you know the the go-to reference which i i presume uh re refers to the uh the, the the first edition of the uh the supervisor's guidebook that you folks put out and i, I believe you guys have a have a, 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 a another edition of that but that they came out this year is that right that's correct uh this year the second edition of the uh supervisor's guidebook came out that um uh, we went went with a, a new publisher or a different publisher, Charles C. Thomas. But yeah, that's now out, and it has the same information as the first edition, plus additional information like on um, supervising from a distance, um, mm -hmm. and updated terminology and updated examples, kind of like what you alluded to, because a lot of the first edition was based on work in uh, larger residential facilities. Second edition is more applicable to uh, community living settings, um, ABA programs for young children with autism, that kind of thing. Um, right, right. And, you know, just to comment on the behavioral skills training, that, that approach mm -hmm. to training, um, I think it's something we can be proud of in behavior analysis, because that has been developed over years through a lot of research and a lot of different settings. Initially, we referred to it as performance and competency-based training. Right. Uh, that's more of a mouthful. I like behavioral <laughs> skills training better. We didn't originate behavioral skills training as a descriptor. Uh, I like it, but the uh, performance and competency-based training is more descriptive in terms of the meat of that approach to training. Uh, Performance-based means that both the trainer and trainees have to perform. Competency-based means the training is not completed until we see the trainees perform the target skills competently. Um, but again, that terminology has changed over time. But uh, behavioral skills training, that and the effectiveness of positive feedback for increasing and maintaining desired staff performance are probably the two behavioral applications that have the most uh, research and application um, to support their effectiveness. effectiveness. Very evidence-based, those two general strategies. Absolutely. And I know you, you didn't come up with the sort of the, the newer term of behavioral skills training, but was all the sort of performance and competency-based uh, research, is that mostly from your group or...? Um, we did a lot over the years, and part of that's yeah. because, you know, I and my group, they won't like it, but we're older than dirt now. We've been at this a long time. <laughs> so we, we've had the opportunity to do a lot, but uh, a lot of other people um, were involved in developing the same kind of approach to uh, staff training as well. 
Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I uh, the the first book that I kind of so you guys have a whole um, um, uh, series out of uh, of uh, of books based on the kind of you uh, have a whole book series on the behavior analysis applications and developmental disabilities, and they all come with sort of um, you know it's interesting the 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 you know the there, 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 there's, 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 there's no, there's no pictures. Um, the, the covers are very, um, um, you know, simple, um, but they, they, they have a nice theme and, and for, for collectors like me, they, they, they really force you to want to get all the, all, all, all the matching colors so you can have the whole set. <laughs> um, you know, and, but, but the titles on it were so, inspiring to me at, at the time kind of early in my career um, uh, um you know and I, I kind of got into this field in around 2000 and working primarily in kind of group homes and kind of residential sort of uh, living kind of scenarios and there really is no training there, there was really no training out there or no sort of certification or no qualification for being a group home manager basically I, you just had to sort of work in the group home and apply for the job. They weren't looking for sort of any, any particular skills. And so it always kind of frustrated me that we're, you know, we're, we're not getting any training in, in kind of how to, you know, s support the folks we have. We often find behavior plans and filing cabinets and not know what to do with them. And so it was really exciting when, when, when I kind of picked up the, the, the first book of, of yours that I picked up and a, a long title, but, but just, you know, says everything you ever wanted, you know, working with staff to overcome challenging behavior among people who have severe disabilities, a guide for getting support plans carried out. I mean, this is the biggest challenge I think of most, um, you know, behavior analysts working in, uh, in, in, in the context of, of sort of group homes and, 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 and sort of those settings primarily because of, you know, the number one, the lack of training that, you know, uh, those staff have to the, uh, the, 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 the length of time. Some of those folks have been working in there without training. So 10, 20 years, some of them, um, which can be a positive as well in terms of rapport building. Um, and then, and then, and, and, but, but, but that there's just, there's just no sort of, sort of you know method for proven method for kind of um that that's out there that's available um so really appreciated uh you know seeing books like motivating human service staff so getting folks to be you know in, more interested in their work i i find that to be still really one of the biggest challenges um uh, sort of today what wh what do you do with how do you how do you work with in, in a context with um a lot of legacy staff is sort of the term staff that have been around for a long time and don't want to change um, um, and and sort of settings where, you know, individuals may not have had the choice of where they want to live or choice of their roommates. There's just so many kind of confounding variables that that that, you know, make this work so hard in sort of the adult residential setting. And yet it seems like kind of the the, the work you're doing has had a lot of success. What's what's the trick? <laughs> <laughs> well, as you're well aware, you know, there's no one silver bullet. That may be a bad analogy, but um, I, I think uh, 
the best approach, um, at least within the field of behavior analysis, is to do just that. Take a behavior analytic database approach to whatever the issue is. Mm -hmm. So let's say uh, we feel like our, our staff are, they just don't show any initiative. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, operationalize that. What is it they're doing or not doing that causes you to think they're not showing initiative? So, mm -hmm. so we operationalize that in terms of staff work behavior, and then we address it from behavioral um, perspective. Is it a skill deficit? Do we need to do training? Mm -hmm. um, do we need to provide more support, reinforcement for them to engage in the appropriate behavior? Um, you know, one of the uh, concerns I have right now um, that kind of relates to this issue is that in mm -hmm. our work in uh, ABA programs for children with autism, for example. What we see is a lot of very good teaching um, and, say, uh, behavior analysts supervising RBTs or other technicians and giving good mm -hmm. feedback, doing good training with them. But I don't see uh, as much application of behavior analysis to solve other issues uh, within the organization or from a supervisory mm -hmm. perspective. For example, at least in the States, a lot of those programs have very high turnover. Mm -hmm. um, well, turnover has been an issue in the IDD field, particularly in community settings for decades. Mm -hmm. um, and there are a lot of reasons there. But that doesn't mean we can't approach it from a behavior analytic standpoint. In fact, what my group's tried to do over the years is, uh, with our research at least, is, is take a problem-solving approach. And what I mean by that is if we have a problem in our service setting or a problem in a setting with which we're consulting, um, let's take a behavioral analytic approach to try to solve that problem and do it in applied research fashion. Because if we solve it in a database fashion, then we can share that with other people who are having the same problem. Mm. Um, and that's kind of how we got into the one book you brought up about working with staff and uh, a guide for getting support plans carried out. You know, as time went on um, and we started doing more consulting with agencies, both in schools and in group homes and so forth over the last several decades, we certainly ran into challenges with getting our behavior support plans carried out. So we started addressing that from a behavior analytics standpoint and doing some research on how do we solve that problem? If someone's not carrying out a behavior support plan appropriately, then we assess it. Um, based on the results of our assessment, we develop an intervention and we go with it. Um, so, you know, um, I think I probably got off your, your original question there. Uh, All good. But, you know, you were talking about, to try to bring it back, that some of those more global issues, um, mm -hmm. like staff who say they've been at it for a long time. And many of them, yeah. quite frankly, have worked under very difficult conditions mm -hmm. um, and may not be real responsive to change, especially if, a, you know, a new consultant or behavior analyst comes in. Um, mm -hmm. But, again, we, we can work on that from a behavioral perspective in terms of what do we need to change? Um, 
Is it a skill deficit again, where we need to do training? Do we need to find a better way to support and reinforce? Do we need to do some corrective interventions? So even those global issues is what I'm saying. If we take the time to operationalize them in terms of what people are doing or not doing, then we can start to figure out how to address them um, using our science of behavior analysis. Yeah, no, that makes sense. One thing you, you, you brought up, you know, and which, you know, is, is, is a big piece is around training. I want to just kind of touch a little more on, on, on that specifically. I think one of the, the barriers, and I know certainly even for, you know, our own company, um, is, is kind of this idea of, um, I guess, for a lack of a better term, sort of capacity building. So training, you know, an agency to, because, because we can't provide service sort of forever and ever and ever, there's a point where we've kind of got to fade ourselves out and, and sort of let them continue on and, and, and run their agency um, and move on to the next. Um, there seems to be sort of an issue of, uh, of, of maintenance of skills and, and, or, uh, you know, and part of that I think is due to staff turnover because, you know, you lose staff or uh, you've trained sort of 10 or 12 staff and now they've all left and there's a new group of staff. Um, and, and so it becomes sort of a, a you, you want to try to build capacity in the agencies so that they can kind of continue to, you know, kind of maintain those skills. You, you, uh, you, your, your team published an article in, in 2017 in behavior analysis and practice called uh, maintaining staff performance following a training intervention. I saw that preview sort of on Google scholar when I was looking things up. And, and then when I clicked on it, I also, I saw, I saw what came after the colon suggestions from a 30 year case example. So you have a research study showing, you know, uh, maintenance of, of, of some of those skills 30 years later, I, I, I'd like to kind of hear more about that study and, 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 and kind of what were the sort of, sort of those, you know, key pieces in there that allowed, you know, a, a training program to maintain for, for so long. Uh, well, that actually, I'm glad you brought that one up. That was one of our most uh, reinforcing research undertakings, um, as well as just from a server's service provision. And, uh, you know, what was going on at the time, and this is still an issue today in many settings, at mm -hmm. least in the States, um, in working with adults with significant disabilities who attend day programs. Um, one of the biggest concerns is what we as staff are giving them to do or supporting them to do. Mm -hmm. um, and more specifically, a lot of those programs do not provide folks with real meaningful activities, activities mm -hmm. that help them become more independent, activities that help them enjoy their day. Instead, what has happened is a lot of the activities that are provided are designed for young children. Um, mm -hmm. I'll give an example. It, it, again, at least in the States. and. It's been a while since I've observed some settings, say, in Canada. Uh, but when I did, there were some similar issues. And, and again, I'm talking about day support programs for adults or, say, leisure yep. time in a group home for adults. You know, the most common activities that existed when we started that study over 30 years ago, um, 
They still exist today in a number of settings. We see adults they do. spending a lot of time coloring a children's coloring book, yep. putting the same puzzle together over and over. And, and of course, people will, will, will challenge us and say, well, what's wrong with coloring? Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with drawing, but if we're given the same children's coloring books to color in, how is that helping mm -hmm. an adult to live an independent life or an enjoyable life? Um, mm -hmm. You know, how is putting the same puzzle together day after day meaningful for mm -hmm. that individual? So that was the concern way back when we started that. And, you know, I'm not throwing stones at, at agencies that run adult day programs because these were the concerns in our programs. I was in an upper mm -hmm. level administrative position and I had three different uh, day support programs for adults under my area of responsibility. And we were facing this issue in each of those day programs. So mm -hmm. we, we looked into the literature, um, a lot of it in special education uh, that focused on, you know, what are meaningful skills to teach students in special education classrooms that will actually help their lives outside of the classroom? And we eventually developed some guidelines in terms of what represents meaningful or functional skills for adults did some research to validate those guidelines. Um, then that, that study that you referenced is where we trained our staff how to go about mm. changing what they were providing for the individuals they serve from non-meaningful or non-functional to more meaningful. Mm. So we trained them how to do that. Um, and most importantly, um, we put in place uh, a supervisory system to maintain it, specifically mm. the directors of those day programs who <laughs> just happened to be my closest colleagues, Carolyn Green and <laughs> Marcia Parsons, uh, <laughs> Joyce Jensen as well. She was Joyce McCarn at the time. They implemented mm. weekly feedback systems. So they would go out weekly mm. and look to see what staff were doing with individuals. Um, if it was in accordance with the guidelines, you know, would support that. If not, they would meet with the staff and say, how can we turn this, you know, into something more meaningful for the individual and, and come up mm -hmm. with a, it was kind of a participative management approach to coming up with something more meaningful. Mm. Um, and, uh, so they continued and they, they, they stretched it out from a weekly feedback system to a monthly thing, in some cases, quarterly. And uh, with that study, we were fortunate, I was fortunate in that those supervisors continued in their roles. And um, when one left, when Marsha Parsons actually came to work in my private company at the time, uh, she handed off her role to someone who had worked with us early on, Joyce McCarn, now Joyce Jensen, and Joyce just continued the same feedback system. Mm. Um, so it, it, you know, part of it was fortuitous because mm -hmm. I had really good people running those programs. They were interested in improving it and they were interested in maintaining the improvements once they made them. All I had to do was help give them some tools to do that. Mm. And, and then, of course, try to support them in doing that. You know, it, it kind of gets to, uh, it's kind of a cliche and, and, supervision and management that goes beyond human services. And that is, you know, the best way to be a good supervisor is hire really good staff 
Mm-hmm. You know, let them know what they need to do and get out of their way. Mm-hmm. Well, that's accurate, but incomplete. Uh, mm-hmm. The next step of that is actively support them. Mm-hmm. Keep them doing good work. And that that's kind of what my role was in that study that you brought up. The second secret word is dignity. Yeah, oh, that that's cool. So that, and it opens up uh, opens up a can of worms in a couple of ways. So I, I think, I mean, obviously, you know, people are listening and go, "Well, okay, they, you know, they had the same staff, they had the same supervisors for thirty years. That's how they kept it going. It had nothing to do with sort of anything." Well, else. A- actually, <laughs> if I can interrupt, one of the supervisors yeah. did turn over. And right. the staff turned over 100%. When we took our last yes. follow-up data in, in that project, the original staff were no longer there. Yes. Um, but we, we can get into that. I'm sorry, I interrupted. Go ahead. No, no, I, no, I appreciate that. That's, that, that, that. that's a really good point. And I, I was kind of going to get to that. Is that, is that even, I think even if... Um, you know, Marsha and Carolyn and the others had sort of left and others had gone on. Um, the basic kind of premise of your intervention, you know, wasn't all that intense. I mean, I think when we think about sort of, or when I've thought of it from our, my perspective, when I've thought about sort of kind of capacity building, it's been around, you know, giving a team all the skills to do you know, kind of their own functional assessments and and uh, and and sort of go through that whole process, um, you know, with some support to kind of deal with challenging behavior over time. But what I really like about your study um, and and others that I've kind of seen like this is you weren't focused on that. You were focused more on, you know, sort of the, the you know, well, you weren't even focused on problem behavior per se. I mean, you're just you're focused on kind of quality of life and um, and, and sort of basic things in the context of a, a of a group home or a day program that can be really preventative in terms of of uh, challenging behavior. We know that in these settings, and even today, and it's no different from you know reading the. Uh, the reviews from your studies from the seventies is, is things like you said, people are doing, there's not group homes are boring. <laughs> Day programs are boring. Uh, generally, there are some good ones out there here and there that, that have, you know, mastered some of these pieces, but overall, you know, the options of things to do are limited, watch TV, do a puzzle, like you said, coloring book, um, you know, uh, play with a, you know, a, the same toy sort of over and over again that you've been playing with since you were a child and you're still playing with it as an adult. Um, and more so do a lot of those activities by yourself um, and not even sort of be engaged by staff, you know, in those activities. And so I think you touch on a really important piece that, you know, we can do all of the, you know, behavior support and behavior analysis to sort of try to change behavior and whatnot. But, you know, if these folks are, you know, super bored all the time, none of that's going to matter. And and so I think the idea of I, th- I think one of the key sort of pieces in your in your study is this idea of, of meaningful versus non-meaningful and functional versus non-functional. Can you sort of break that down a little more, like what the, what the difference is? Well, you know, we uh, we kind of, like I mentioned, uh, took our lead from. 
some good work that was going on in special education at the time. And keep in mind, this is a number of decades ago. Lou Brown was doing some good work, coming up again with meaningful things to teach uh, people with, with highly significant challenges. And, and one of the, the uh, most basic guidelines for what's meaningful to teach was, you know, if a person can't do something that somebody else has to do for them in their environment, such as if someone can't go buy their food, someone else has to do that for them, then that's a functional skill to teach. Anything that staff have to do for individuals with disabilities are meaningful skills to teach. And, you know, that sounds kind of simplistic, but if you really think about it and you go into a program site and you see what the person is doing or even being supported in doing by the staff person, you know, like if I'm teaching someone to put pegs in a pegboard, okay, well, outside of my teaching session, um, is anybody going to have to put those pegs in a pegboard for an individual if the individual can't do it? No. But if the individual can't button his shirt, someone's going to have to button it for him. Therefore, teaching to button a shirt is a meaningful skill. So we start with that basic, and then we can look at, you know, kind of domains, uh, the vocational domain. Um, if we're teaching a skill in way back when I got in the field, we had a lot of pre-vocational programs. You know, the intent was to teach precursor skills so people could then get real work for real pay. The problem was a lot of individuals never left those pre-vocational programs. Um, and part of the reason was what was being taught was not real functional vocational skills. Hmm. So a good guideline there is if what we're teaching a person to do under the domain of vocational skills, can they be paid to do that exact task um, outside of this teaching setting? Mm -hmm. If not, we're not teaching a functional vocational skill. Mm -hmm. And as you're well aware, a large part of our field changed and, you know, with a de-emphasis on center-based day programs and moving into supported work, you know, mm -hmm. help an individual with special needs uh, get into a work situation and provide whatever supports, either from a job coach, natural supports, so that individual can, you know, function appropriately and succeed in that work environment. Yeah. Um, that's just another area, a, a domain uh, of where we had um, some of those skills. In the social skill domain, guideline there, uh, working with individuals to teach social skills. It, is this a skill a person would use outside of that training session on at least a weekly basis mm. with someone else? If not, it's probably not the most meaningful social skill to teach. So, for example, and, and some folks will argue with this. Let's say um, we're, we're having our class and we're teaching our class how to sing happy birthday. Mm. Okay. Well, that would seem like a meaningful skill, but how often do you get to sing happy birthday? <laughs> True. Um, if an individual does not know how to greet somebody appropriately, say an individual, individual will tend to hug anybody she sees. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, well, greeting skills are something we do every day unless mm -hmm. we live in total isolation. Mm -hmm. So if a skill can be used daily or weekly, it's generally more functional to teach than a skill that can only be used every few months. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't mean 
the skill that's only used every few months, like seeing happy birthday is not important. Of course, it's important, but it's more meaningful to teach individuals things that they can do every day or every week, like greet people when they see them or interact in the typical situations in which they meet them. Mm -hmm. um, now, you, you got me going on these guidelines, so I need to add a qualifier. Please. For every guideline that, that we develop based on other people's research and application, you know, there's always exceptions. Mm -hmm. um, let, let me let me give one. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we um, with the social skill, leisure skill is somewhat similar. You know, we consider it a meaningful leisure skill if someone of the same age group as a learner uh, would typically do that during his or her leisure time, then it's mm -hmm. usually a meaningful skill to mm -hmm. teach. Um, but we had a, a, a gentleman um, that we were associated with that his, with, you know, severe intellectual disabilities, his brother was getting married and his brother wanted his brother with special needs to be the best man at his wedding. Well, this individual also had autism and did not respond well in new uh, situations. Mm. And so folks were concerned that he would have difficulty, what you know, folks will call a meltdown, during mm. the wedding because mm. it would be a very different situation for him. So, you know, we worked with some folks. We didn't do the bulk of the work. Other people did. They did it very nicely. So they decided, well... You know, he's probably only going to be a best man once, but it's very important to his brother, mm. to his family, and probably mm. important to him. So what they did was they broke down, they task analyzed, what does it take to be a best man? You know, um, walk down the aisle, hold the ring, give the ring over. And so they, they task analyzed the skills. They taught the gentleman how to do that in a simulated situation, then mm -hmm. went and actually practiced in the church. Amazing. And then by the time the wedding came, uh, he did fine. And it was a really sweet situation for everybody mm -hmm. involved. That would be an issue where, you know, it's an exception to the guideline. That would not meet the criterion for social skill of something you could do every week. Um, but so I just want to point that out um, in, in regard to determining meaningful skills to teach and so forth. No, I appreciate that, and, and I think the impact of uh, of that particular event, not only on on his life, but on 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 all the people around him, and and, and sort of especially those that maybe what might have had sort of I don't know uh, presumptions on on how you know the individual might act or or how it might go. Uh, you know, I, I, it, it probably had a lot more meaning in terms of you know making contact with sort of more positive social interactions going forward. So I, I think that, that, that makes, that makes a whole lot of sense. Um, something else kind of that you touched on and I, I saw it in one of the papers might've been in this 30 year paper um, is, and I think, it, and, and, and I'm sort of wondering how you kind of guide staff to kind of get to this angle. Um, is is to convince staff that their role is not to be a caregiver, but to be a teacher. Well, there is some caregiving involved for sure, uh, but but the teaching is kind of that primary role. I, I think a lot of folks that are working in group homes and running group homes and managing and supervising group homes look at the group home as sort of, especially for an adult, 
with a child, it's different, I think, but for an adult, as sort of, this is it. This is the final sort of, uh, you know, uh, spot for for this individual. He's not going to move out of this group home ever, you know, unless we run out of funding or whatever. Uh, he's never going to go back home. He is never going to, you know, do A, B, and C. Um, this is where he's going to be forever. So let's just make it as, you know, as comfortable or 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 whatever sort of term you want to describe it as, um, but not sort of worry about sort of, you know, independence as being a possibility and even consider that, you know, independence could be a possibility. And particularly, and I think particularly in group homes today, mostly a lot of these folks tend to have more profound, severe levels of disability. Um, how, How do we get sort of that group home culture, I guess, as it were, to sort of move from my job is to do everything for you to my job is to teach you to do things for yourself. Well, that, that brings up a whole, whole lot of important issues. And, you know, the one issue is if, if we're talking about adults, um, you know, uh, I, I agree. My group agrees that it's not like being in school in school. You're preparing people for their adult lives with adults. This is it. Um, so, you know, a heavy focus should be, in our opinion, on helping them have a good day, a nice quality of life. Okay. And it's hard to disagree with that, you know, um, but where the issue comes up is how do we help them have a really good quality of life, um, as an adult. And part of that focuses on, you know, uh, helping them enjoy their day. And that's where we get in the, the whole different area of uh, promoting happiness among people with highly significant disabilities uh, using a behavior analytic approach. Uh, but let's say we start there. Um, as we get into that and assess, you know, when is this person happy and how can we help this person enjoy her day more? What we often get into is, you know, Expanding the person's preferences and experiences, letting them access more things to see what they like. Um, often, though, to help them enjoy more things, they have to develop skills. Uh, you know, you can't really go um, and enjoy, if anybody enjoys, say, going to the gym with a support person and working out in an adult exercise class with the other people that go to the gym, okay? And it might be, and we've had a case where an individual really seemed to enjoy doing that. More enjoyment came when the individual learned how to do the exercises and you know, follow the instructions of the group leader, um, as well as interact with the other folks who were going there. So kind of going roundabout way here, but one of the rationales for teaching skills is it it helps people have more and varied experiences, mm. which means they're more likely to find out other things they like to do. But to do those, they have to have skills. So we need we need to teach those. Mm. Um, as far as you know, kind of building that teaching idea into the culture, mm-hmm. it, it should start when we first hire staff. Mm. And we lay out what their job is. Um, but in the real world, often what happens, um, particularly, say, in group homes, is 
you know, there's always a coverage issue in yep. terms of having enough staff and we'll hire new staff. And often the only train we, training we give them, um, I say we as a field, is, you know, how to make sure they don't abuse or neglect folks, how to yep. fill out the appropriate paperwork. Yep. Um, but we got to get them out there because we need their their help right away. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so we don't have time to really teach them what we want to do here. You know, we want to help these people have the best lives that they can. And part of that, and, and this is a value base, so, you know, listeners can agree or disagree. But part of our value is we want to help people with significant dis disabilities be in control of their lives, live their lives the way they want to as much as possible. They're adults. And most of us want to live our lives the way we want to, right? I mean, that's kind of a circular reasoning. Um, but to be in control of one's life, one has to have skills. And so that requires teaching to help them live their life the way they want to and be less dependent on us. So there are a lot of reasons or rationales, if you will, that we can give the staff about why we teach and we should do that, but we really should start from the get-go as far as, okay, so we need to make sure you know how to teach. And so we need to train our staff to teach and in particular, train how to teach naturalistically in terms of we don't have to just sit down with an adult one-on-one -on -one to teach a particular skill. That's important, but we can teach a lot of things naturalistically as we go through the day. Mm -hmm. um, that's a real key skill we want staff to teach, but with any staff training, we can train our staff how to, to teach naturalistically, but then that's going to have to be supervised. They're going to have to be supported, given time to do that. Um, if they have problems, they're going to need to have help to be corrected. Um, and they, they need to see the supervisor doing that a lot. So, you know, there are ways to do what you just talked about doing. It takes, you know, some pretty good skills and a lot of time, but it's worth it. Yeah. No, that makes sense for sure. Um, I think you, you touched on one thing that maybe we should jump into. Uh, we talked about, uh, and we talked about a bit about this um, kind of, uh, in terms of you know quality of life being really important and uh, and just just to have sort of a, a richer more enjoyable life, uh, a lot of the I had I've had this conversation with a, a, a couple of guests now had a just had a recent uh, interview with a fellow named Darren Bowring out of out of uh, the UK who's doing a lot of work in um, in um, in group home settings over there in in positive behavior support uh, and in quality of life. And we really were talking about sort of um, how how quality how how we measure quality of life today. Um, you know, it's not may not be like at least from our perspective may not be the best way to go. It it, it, it seems to be really kind of subjective. A lot of these measures that are out there. Um, there's a guy, uh, Dr. Robert Shallock, is 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 really well known as sort of being you know, a sort of a preeminent quality of life researcher. Um, he's been out, he's been out our way a few times to BCs. He works with our, our, our local sort of adult funder, as it were, um, to kind of develop uh, domains of, he developed, develop using his kind of domains of, uh, of, uh, of life that, that he's created. And, but all of these sort of, uh, 
a lot of the questions that kind of come out of these these quality of life sort of measures are either subjective so they're from a caregiver perspective what do you how do you think you know so and so likes his life and 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 uh and 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 sort of so there's that sort of subjective indirect piece or um there are there are more objective questions you know do you have a job um do you get to have friends over? Do you like going to the movie? Do you get to go to the movies or whatnot? Um, and, and and those can be kind of a measure. But we kind of found that both of them, both of those directions were 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 problematic because number one, they kind of came from the perspective sort of of people that wrote these domains 20, 30 years ago. And and so what might be what might kind of quality of life then might be different now further we talked about sort of you know there are there are folks that are we talked about it he talked about an individual who you know who didn't want to get a job and 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 told him that sort of you know why would i want to go do something that's really hard and sweaty only uh you know when when i already have disability funding that kind of pays for everything um and 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 for everything that i need and i'm quite happy that way and and i and i thought that was a really interesting point and we were struggling to sort of come up with a quality of life measure um uh that that, that made a lot of sense and that's what i remembered um although i hadn't really looked into it that uh there were some folks who i later realized was yourself uh, that had been studying a different way to kind of measure, you know, someone's satisfaction with their own life, and that's measuring happiness um, and measuring unhappiness. And you and your team, I think, uh, I, I may have been one, maybe the the earliest study on this was around 1996 that I could find. Maybe there's an earlier one um, uh, where you did a study with uh, with uh, Carolyn Green. Uh, defining, validating, and increasing indices of happiness among people with profound uh, multiple disabilities. I think this this study, and I don't know how often it's used or how often these indices are used, but I think really it really is a game changer because in any context, you know, I think these these indices tend to be generally the same. You know, you're smiling, you're you're laughing, you're you're engaged, you're you make your 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 you know your demeanor sort of comes off that way. Whereas if you're unhappy crying and not smiling and, 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 you know, uh, uh, engaging in kind of, you know, problem behavior or whatever, uh, sort of is that indication of unhappiness. What, uh, what led you to kind of come up with what seems like a really kind of simple idea. And then, uh, uh, and then, and sort of, and sort of, how did you kind of, uh, And how did you kind of continue to use these indices as sort of that measure of kind of quality of life? Well, uh, on a general level, you know, it was something we had been interested in for a long, long time. And part of it was just, you know, with a supervisory level, um, as a supervisor, you know, your quality of work life is generally better if if your staff are upbeat and pleasant. and you know, part of the job of supervisors is, is help staff enjoy their work and it makes life better for everybody, mm. including the individuals they serve. Um, and, and we were at the time working a lot with people with profound multiple disabilities who were heavily dependent on staff just to get through the day. Um, and, and we're, you know, we're getting into the quality of life issues and 
we were working in an agency at the time, and the director uh, was a psychiatrist, um, the late Dr. Iverson Riddle. And he kept referring to what he called the joy quotient. Um, and he said, you know, for throughout history, we've looked at the intelligent quotient and so forth. He said, I think we need a joy quotient. Hmm. And he, he kind of challenged staff in the agency in terms of, you know, how can we help people have more joy in their lives? And at the time, I thought, well, you know, in behavior analysis, we can address that. We, we can give that a shot. So that's another kind of problem-oriented approach we took with our applied research was hmm. how can we go about uh, determining when folks are happy who cannot tell us in conventional ways that they're happy and how can we increase their happiness? And, and that's kind of what got it started. And Carolyn Green was a real driver um, in that area too. Um, and that's kind of how we got started. And the more we thought about it, and, and we still do work in that area today, even with folks with more advanced skills, but still have challenges communicating that emotional experience of being happy or not happy. Um, we, we've done some of the work with the supported workers that have worked for us over time. Uh, so it, it's kind of a, an involved sort of discussion, if you will, when we're looking at happiness among people who cannot tell us about their private emotional experiences. Um, so we go by the next best thing, and that is the indices, what people tend to do when they're happy or not. And let me give a real pra practical example. Mm -hmm. One of the things that concerned us over the years is we'd go into a group home or we'd go into a setting where, you know, it was our setting. We were responsible for supervising the staff. And one of the things that, that dawned on me is, you know, I walked through and I don't see anybody smile. And I don't hear anybody laughing. Um, and that might be a group home. It might be a day program. And that just seemed kind of not so nice. Um, so we, we train our, our supervisors now, you know, periodically walk through your setting. Do you see folks smiling? Do you hear people laughing? Do you see signs that they're, you know, ha having a good day? If not, maybe we need to address that. And you don't want to get me going off on that because that, that's something that we spend a lot of time on thinking increasing joy or happiness in one's day. I mean, that, that should be a primary goal of of any support plan. Um, we have to initially determine how do we know when the person's happy or not, mm -hmm. and then use our evidence-based procedures to help promote happiness. Um, and we've, act, we've got a book on that. Um, the problem we've had is when you're dealing with people who cannot really tell you about their private emotional experiences, mm. It, it's kind of an involved process <clears throat> to go through and identify and validate uh, indices of happiness. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, what, what's more important than being happy as an adult, you know? I mean, so that, that's something we like to address. And, uh, you know, you were talking about overall quality of life, which you know, I really like that area, um, but there are you know, a lot of scholars much more knowledgeable in that area than I am. Our approach mm. 
to quality of life is pretty much nuts and bolts. Mm-hmm. You know, if we can determine what the individual wants, um, then our approach is how do we help her get it? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, actually, a lot of our work has been driven for the last several decades on person-centered planning. And I don't know what your view or your colleague's view is on that, but there's been a lot of controversy over the years between applied behavior analysis and person-centered planning. Mm-hmm. Um, we see no need for that controversy, um, basically. Uh, and, and you know, when we get into quality of life and happiness, we think it should start with the person-centered plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, we agree with the individual and those people most important in the individual's life is where we start in terms of how do we give the best quality of life for this person. However, behavior analysis in our experience and research has a, a lot to offer to make that process work well. Hmm. And one of the areas that relates to what we're talking about is how do we determine what this person really likes if she can't tell us what she likes? And that's where behavior analysis can really help out with, you know, real, a real broad technology of valid preference assessments procedures. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, that that makes that makes a lot of sense, um, and I, <clears throat> I am definitely on the same page as you when it comes to uh, person-centered planning. It's it's def- it's kind of key to our, uh, my, our agency's um, uh, uh, process. In fact, uh, my uh, my clinical director, uh, Doctor Paul Millette, um, kind of created our whole agency based on on um on his uh doctoral dissertation which was on his own version of person-centered plan that he created called the lifestyle development process where he kind of incorporates essentially components of person-centered planning so that you can kind of embed that it embeds that person-centered planning piece right into the into the into the assessment process from the get-go um and so yeah no it's definitely huge huge value there i actually interviewed um um uh uh dr gould in in uh monash university in australia and she's working with um uh, folks with traumatic brain injury and they've kind of taken person-centered planning to the next level um, and they call it, uh, you know, it seems like a similar name, but they call it person-driven planning. And, and essentially what, what they try to do, and it works really well in, in kind of the brain injury context, but they try to, they try to, they always start with the individual and really try to have that individual involved in every single piece of the process from, from you know, hello to writing, to doing the assessment, to writing the report, to, 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 to designing the the behavior support plan to choosing those strategies to measuring the fidelity they're involved in every single aspect of that and uh in in the U, in the UK and Australia they kind of refer to that as kind of co-production co-design so i, I just i i love that and and i think it's it's super important and we are actually starting to see now again touching back on this sort of you know, ABA reform kind of concept that's come come out lately. I've started to see really young behavior analysts, uh, you know, 
bringing up this idea of person-centered planning as almost a, as being a new idea, um, which I thought was interesting. Um, uh, but that there, we're I think we're really starting to see some of these um, really powerful tools that that we kind of developed in the in the late '80s and '90s. Uh, really starting to catch hold as folks realize how important it is to sort of, um, you know, uh, really consider that person's preferences, person's wants and needs, and and to really kind of look at, um, you know, tr- uh, treating them with treating them with that dignity and respect. So I, I really I really see that as as being a really powerful piece. I love the idea of the joy quotient. That's really cool. The third secret word is happiness. Yeah, that wasn't mine. That was uh, <laughs> Dr. Riddle's uh, thing. I'm not sure where he, if he derived or got it from somebody else. But, you know, yeah. even even what we're talking about now, promoting happiness, uh, truly providing person-centered or person-driven supports and services, it still gets back to staff training and supervision mm-hmm. in large part. Uh, part of the way we got involved in the person setting process was we we're finding with some of the folks who'd gone through the process, then nothing really happened after the person center planning meeting. Yes. Um, we had to train staff what they should do to follow up on that. And then we had to supervise to make sure it happened. Yes. Um, Something as simple as, you know, spending the time to determine what someone with, say, very profound intellectual disabilities really likes um, through preference assessments. Uh, We had to do some, you know, pretty close supervision in terms of monitoring and providing feedback to make sure, you know, staff actually provided them access to the things they like during the course of the day. Um, so, you know, we can't just put a plan on paper and expect mm-hmm. it to happen. Things People mm-hmm. have to do things, and often that means they have to be supervised in doing those things. Yeah, that, that, that really resonates for me. I've, I've been involved in a lot of uh, uh, PATH, uh, person-centered planning kind of sessions. That's that uh, planning alternative tomorrows with hope. Uh, I think it was uh, – Jack Pearson or one of the, one of those guys or or no Pierpoint Jack Jack Pierpoint, um, uh, I think that that was kind of one of one of his inventions and and yeah they're, they're a, it's a beautiful process lots of um, lots of you know lots of input from the, the individual and their families and and often a wonderfully uh, a wonderful sort of a piece of artwork kind of created out of it that these folks called graphic facilitators that are trained in kind of drawing and whatever. And in the end, there's some action items, but you're right. Those action items end up staying on that poster on the wall because there's nothing embedded in that person's inner planning process that sort of requires folks to follow through with those action items. So, yeah, you're right. That's where that behavior analytic, uh, you know, uh, problem solving uh, supervision piece really kind of comes in, comes into play. Um, um, also kind of got me thinking about uh, uh, just you know, kind of, kind of how, how we treat individuals and how we support individuals. It, 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 it's interesting again, to sort of see uh, research kind of just coming out now, you know, in, 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 in the last sort of um, uh, five years on essentially bedside manner, our, our version of bedside manner in, in terms of kind of how we, how we, how we just, just treating folks with respect. Um, 
uh, we had uh, uh, we had a, a recent uh, chapter conference, um, and we had uh, Dr. Uh, Bridget Taylor come and speak to us about compassionate care, and it was a wonderful presentation. And you know, and she 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 knows her stuff, and and she's had a great message. But it also made me sad that in 2021, our field needs someone to come and tell us to be compassionate um, and, and 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 to treat people with with uh, with dignity and respect. I, I, and it reminded me of uh, uh, an article that, that again that you, that you did uh, with some different folks um, on on essentially teaching behavior analysts to treat adults with uh, uh, adults with uh, uh, intellectual disabilities with dignity. And I thought that was a really neat article that you wrote that, that essentially gave some give some um, you know uh, some some guidelines on kind of you know. You know, essentially, how to be good to the people they're supporting. How, what 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 kind of brought you to write this article in 2017? Of, of all, again, speaking sort of that sort of, you know, late in the game, we've still got to teach people these folks. And sort of, how did you come up with kind of those um, those items, those guidelines? Well, that one uh, that, that just kind of evolved with some experiences I was having because at the time, you know. I was consulting with a lot of different agencies, traveling a lot and seeing a lot of different things. And, um, you know, I, I saw some things that, that personally just kind of bothered me. And in some cases, I, the staff weren't bad people. They were great people. Mm. But in some cases, just weren't thinking about uh, what was going on or how they were interacting with somebody. Um and so I, I talked to one of the co-authors on that paper, Mary Rossform, and this is identified in the paper. She's a parent of an adult um, with some special challenges. And um, uh, she relayed some stories to me. Uh, and it just, um, it just felt like something we wanted to get out there. Uh, it's something we'd worked with my staff on, as well as me. You know, I... I made me do some reflection of some of the things I've done over the years. Um, and, and what one of my staff persons and colleagues really kind of drove it home, uh, Perry Lattimore. And he was, uh, he worked as a job coach and he helped us. He worked with us in our staff training and positive behavior support. And I remember, um, we were sitting in a, a room and, um, we were all sitting around the table, and the uh, client of concern, uh, individual disability, was a woman um, who had some pretty significant intellectual challenges and some, some physical challenges. So she, well, she walks into the room. And Perry immediately stands up. Hmm. Okay, um, and I thought that is a very nice sign of respect. Hmm. Now, I keep in mind, I live in the South in the United hmm. States. Okay, yep. and that's kind of an old tradition. Gotcha. For someone, adult comes in the room, you stand up to greet them. Hmm. Um, and I just thought about, you know, there are a lot of simple things that we sometimes we don't think about with people um, that we support who have disabilities. And that was another reason I wanted to get into it. And, and let me just qualify what I just told you. Um, you know, what may be appropriate, and this actually is in South Carolina in the States, what may be appropriate there in terms of a local cultural practice of mm -hmm. treating people with dignity 
you know, that could very easily be different in Vancouver. Sure. It could be different in a different part of South Carolina. So we have to attend to the local kind of uh, acceptable customs. But basically, you know, if we're treating the folks with disability differently than we treat folks without disabilities wherever Mm -hmm. we live, then we need to attend to that a little bit. So there are a lot of things that got us into write that article, but some of it was just self-reflection on things I I had done before. You know, I Mm -hmm. recently had the experience where I was going in to meet a client I was supposed to assess and help deal with some challenging behavior. And, you know, the the staff person, very very nice individual, introduced me as Dr. Reed, Mm -hmm. then introduced the client as Joe. Sure. Okay. And Joe was almost as old as I was. He was mm-hmm. an adult. But see, see, there's a lack of equivalence there. Mm-hmm. I'm addressed by Mr. Reed or Dr. Reed. He is addressed by his first name. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're treating someone who has a, a disability just with our local social customs differently yeah. than someone who doesn't have a disability. So those kinds of experiences are what kind of motivated me to get with someone, some co-authors, David Rothfels, Mary Rossman, who had similar experiences. So, mm-hmm. Long answer to your question. No, great, great answer. Um, you know, it's it, uh, it, uh, re- really, really good points. And, and, I, and I agree. I mean, you, you would have to write sort of a different article for every every individual culture to sort of get, you know, those lists of guidelines. So folks reading the article really need to sort of you know, embed those pieces in, into the into the culture. You know, I know, I know there's I know you had a section on sort of using person first language, and there's I know there's a, there are folks out there, particularly you know in the autistic sort of category, in the autistic sort of identity that do identify as I uh, with the uh, you know the uh, the autistic first, and so you know again it just sort of it, but it, it again it's kind of going with their going with whatever's preferred and sort of in sort of that context. I really like just. Uh, you know, I, I won't. Re- obviously, I'm not going to read the whole paper out loud, but just kind of looking at sort of some of the the, the categories of things that you need to think about. Talking about people, uh, you know, talking about people in front of them. Um, you know, that that's a huge one, I think, and especially in, with for our, for our, for our kind of non-speaking folks. Um, that uh, you know, there's some sort of belief that just because one doesn't speak, they can't hear. Um, uh, you know, referring to people as people. Um, um, uh, you know. Um, uh, how you walk with someone. I, I like, I really liked, there's a, there's a nice table on, on, on behaving in ways that reflect dignity. If, if you're traveling with someone, if you're walking with someone, you know, who's in a wheelchair, uh, you know, trying to push it from the side instead of from, from behind. So you can sort of be on sort of equal footing. I mean, that might be hard to walk with and maybe we need like an adaptive sort of bar that kind of comes out to make pushing from the side easier. Uh, but just a, a lot of really sort of what you almost would think simple, simple kinds of ideas. But we really don't think about these supporting a dignified appearance where, you know, we'll often, you know, let someone sit in the same T-shirt for three days on end and, and not comb their hair or, or those sorts of things when, you know, they don't actually know how to do that. So it, it's important. There, there are some things that we can do for people to sort of help them appear more dignified. So I, I really thought it was a nice basic list and overview of, uh, of really simple things that you could um, that, that, that you should encourage staff to do and really I think could be 
quite easily part of a basic train, a basic even one day training for a group home staff uh, that, you know, that you really need to be treating folks with respect. So really great article. Thank you. It's kind of, uh, we've been talking a lot about sort of um, just all, all the great work you've done and you and your team have done in staff training and, and really kind of advocating for folks with, you know, I think, I think a lot of your work, if, I think it, it's, it's fair to say has really focused on a lot of folks, you know, kind of on the more severe end of the disability realm with, you know, whether it be physical disabilities or, 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 or intellectual disabilities, but often folks that usually can't speak for themselves. And, and so uh, looking at sort of all the pieces that we can sort of put into place, it's just, it's, I guess, I guess sort of what I'm getting at is there, there are, there are so many strategies and procedures and techniques available to help folks that seem like um, they can't do anything, do a whole, whole lot. And, and, and I know you went back and you referenced Lou Brown, uh, makes me think of Lou Brown or, 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 like, or Mark Gold and, and folks like that, that, you know, don't always, I don't think they always come up in, in sort of graduate behavior analysis programs. Um, I was fortunate enough to have a graduate program with uh, Dr. Pat Miranda. So uh, she came from kind of that, she came from that group. She used to work with Lou Brown. And so right, it, it was right. guaranteed, it was guaranteed that Lou's name would come up in our coursework. But I think, um, you know, um, uh, uh, you know, it, it's still sort of, um, I think it's still regarded today that a lot of these folks, you know, don't, won't have the ability to do anything. And so why bother teaching them? Um, uh, and so I think it's really great that, that you're, you're continuing to kind of do work and put out books and put out knowledge that um, um, re really shows the opposite and proves the opposite. I think the nice thing about, you know, studies is, is, is it provides some proof that this stuff can work. It's not just sort of your opinion. Well, you're, you're right. Most of our work, uh, both research and um, just our, our general clinical and support provision has been with people with more significant disabilities. And, um, you know, I, uh, I, I guess that really extends from that initial story I told you about how I got into the supervision field. It mm -hmm. just happened to be a facility that served um, people who had very profound multiple disabilities. Um, but uh, let, me, let me tell you kind of a related story in terms of the excitement at the time of using behavior analysis with that population sure. and that they could do so much more than uh, what folks were giving them credit for. And kind of also relates to just, you know, getting reinforced as a supervisor for seeing nice things happen. So, you know, I'm, I'm full-time graduate student. I'm a full-time supervisor at this place. You know, I got like over 1100 staff under me. It's a very busy job, you know, 24, seven, da, 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 da. Um, and so, uh, another graduate student was looking to do kind of an internship out at that facility, a paid internship. And, um, he came to meet with me about what I would want him to do. Now, it just so happened that, that this guy's name was Brandon Green. And some of y'all might be familiar with, with, with his work. He went on to do what I consider some of the best work in applied behavior analysis. He ran the program at Southern Illinois University 
um, that you look at, you know, trying to keep at-risk families intact? And what can you do to prevent, uh, reduce the risk of neglect and abuse? Um, he did some work on, um, you know, actually published a study in Journal of Applied Behavior Analysis on how to get dentists to use lead shields when they did x-rays. This was back when very few dentists were doing them. And these wow. behavioral procedures did. So he, he ended up being doing excellent work for the field. Um, and anyway, so he, he's just a graduate student at the time, right? And he comes in, you know, Danny, what do you want me to do? And I'm real busy. I don't have time to figure out what he should be doing. Mm. But I told him that there, there was a gentleman who was in a wheelchair um, who was non-vocal. Um, but I had some brief experiences with this gentleman, and I thought he had a lot of potential. Um, so I said, okay, Brandon, why, why don't you teach so-and-so how to, how to eat independently? He has a lot mm. of physical challenges, but... You know, I think he can do it little by no bound. And I was basically just trying to come up with something meaningful to give this intern something to do. Mm -hmm. And he said, okay. Um, then I forgot about it. Two <laughs> days later, he comes back to my office. Brandon says, so what do you want me to do next? And I'm huh. thinking, uh, I told you what I want you to do. Because, you know, he's only working a few hours a week. Yeah. Um, but he says, I did that. So I go <laughs> out. And he, he's taught this gentleman to eat. Uh, he gave him some elbow support, um, an adaptive device and so forth. But he, he did. And that was, to me, it was just another example. Of if you've got mm. staff, and I didn't have anything to do with that, really. Yeah, yeah. Randy did it all. Just, But if you have staff who have good skills, you know, the neat things they can do with the people they serve, if they're motivated to do that, um, it's just very reinforcing from a supervisory standpoint. Um, so I don't know how that relates to where we were, but something triggered that memory and I thought I'd share. Yeah. You know, that's a great memory. I really appreciate that. And I think it, I think it does, um, sort of speak to, well, for sure, the, you know, hiring quality staff, I think that's a really big piece. Um, um, but also, the direction, you know, I, I think some folks, you know, I, I think I had a question. Uh, I don't know if it's one of my questions was sort of around, you know, we, we talked about this around getting folks to sort of shift the mindset from caregiver to teacher. But I think the mindset of caregiver is something we we've imposed on them, you know, that we, we, we haven't asked them to sort of do anything teach wise. We've said, okay. Do the medication, make the meals, um, drive them somewhere, you know, wipe their mouth, those sorts of things. These are these are these are the tasks we've assigned to them, um, and I think that's a great example that we 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 can just start by, you know, simply asking our staff to do something different, especially our new staff. Why don't you come in and teach them how to do something, you know, or or or, or let's take a preference you have. You like playing guitar? Why don't you teach them how to sing a song, you know, with your guitar? Um, or whatever, uh, but you know, I, I think just kind of going out there and 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 changing the expectation, um, you know, could be enough uh, to to sort of make make some real change, real change in kind of these settings. So I think that's a great story. It it can help, and and just what you were saying, 
you know, say, if you know how to play guitar, maybe you could teach some play the guitar if they, they seem to like that. You know, when we were doing that project we talked about earlier of kind of converting from non-meaningful activities to meaningful, mm-hmm. one of the steps in the process is when we were having difficulty coming, what else could we work with this person on? Uh, you know, one of my key staff, she would ask um, her staff, this is Carolyn Green, what do you like to do? You know, and what do you think um, this individual would like to do? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when you're trying to get folks to try new things, um, <laughs> if you're trying to get them to do something they like to do, you're going to be more successful if you're trying to get them to do something they don't like to do. And yep. if they like to do it and they can get some success with the individual, then then it's a win-win situation because often the individual, you know, is pleased with, say, the example you mentioned, learning to play guitar. Mm-hmm. That can be very reinforcing for the staff person, too. Yep. Um, in fact, if, if we can get, and it gets back to this cultural thing you were talking about, you know, if we can, if we do our jobs right and we let our staff know part of your job is to help people learn skills to do things they want to do, mm-hmm. um, one of the most reinforcing aspects of being in a direct support role is when you see somebody accomplish something and they're really happy at accomplishing it, and it's all based on what you did with that individual. You know, that can make the, the job of a, a direct support person much more enjoyable. Um, Problem is often, you know, our, our settings are set up where there's limited time to teach. People are overworked. Um, but when we can work it in, it um, I, I don't think folks come into the job saying, I don't want to have to teach. I'm just here to give personal care. It's yeah. the fact that we don't train them and expose them and help them do it. Exactly. Exactly. There's a. Uh, uh a reference caught my eye in uh, in the in the dignity article and i don't know if it came from you or not it's okay if you don't recall the reference itself but you referenced um uh, uh, you referenced uh, an article by uh, uh christine bigby and julie beetle brown uh, i don't know if that rings a bell or not but um those are names that ring a bell to me because uh there are, i think Julie's in the UK and Christine's in Australia. They've been doing some really neat work. It's sort of for listeners to check out. I'm, I'm trying to get them on the podcast, uh, but they've been doing some really great work around group home culture and right. improve, improving the cultures of group homes. And uh, they've, in fact, uh, they've got a great book out um, that Christine did with a, a guy named Tim Clement um, a few years back. And it's called Group Homes for People with Intellectual Disabilities, and it's a it's a wonderful book on. Uh, and I think it, it includes you know some components of some of your work, um, uh, but a, a lot on sort of this area that's kind of had, had a lot of play in the UK called active support, which um, for, is essentially you know getting folks involved in meaningful activities um, and some other pieces. And so yeah, there there I think that that's a whole other area sort of outside of behavior analysis that I think. Um, you know, uh, those working in those supporting folks in group homes can access as sort of a another support. That whole group home culture piece is so is so important. I think um, it leads me. We're kind of getting near wrapping up here. We've kind of covered up a whole lot of really 
really cool areas, things that I'm, I'm really passionate about. Uh, folks know that I, I kind of primarily work in sort of the group home sort of setting and context and um, uh, not so much anymore. I kind of supervise folks that, 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 that work in those areas. And, um, uh, you know, I think there's, I think there's just a lot of really uh, amazing resources that um, uh, you and your team, you know, have, have provided and have made available for folks. And I, I really want to encourage folks to kind of go out. I'd get the, I'd get the whole read book series, you know, every, they're, they're, he's got a, he's got a book on happiness. He's got a book on preference assessments. He's um, uh, a book on just getting staffed, you know, to kind of, you know, enjoy their job a little more. Um, um, some, some real, with really kind of uh, direct specific uh, uh, instructions and kind of how to do all that. One thing though that that threw me off a bit when I was sort of doing the research for this episode and looking up looking up uh, Danny's work was an article, and I don't know if this is the first one you ever published, but it's certainly the earliest one that I can find um, on, on on Google Scholar, and it's got nothing to do with group poems or intellectual disabilities or institutions or anything like that at all, uh, uh, and. Uh, and I just want to read sort of the, the first paragraph of the article, because if I didn't know this article was published in, in 1976, I would have thought it was a recent article. Um, and it was that um, uh, you know, it's the exhaustion of natural resources in the U.S. has received growing attention over the last several years. The recent fuel shortage seemed to heighten awareness of the depletion of vital resources. This increased concern for the ecological crisis is demonstrated by the establishment of a large number of local, international and international organizations to deal with the emergency problems. I mean, this really sounds like a an introductory art, an introductory paragraph to an article on climate change and um, and, and and sort of climate change and behavior. And I know there are some 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 folks out there right now that are doing some some good work in that area. Uh, but then I but but then to but then to see the see the citation of 1971. So. You did an article called Newspaper Recycling Behavior, The Effects of Prompting and the Proximity of Containers. And it just, it would have been so cool to be a fly on the wall at a time when, you know, young minds like yourself were kind of coming together and thinking about how, you know, you could use behavior analysis to 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 go beyond, you know, uh, uh, you know disabilities. And this is early times for behavior analysis. I mean, the Bear Wolf Grizzly article only came out eight years prior. Um, and so I'm just curious, sort of, where did this article come from? And how did you get into newspaper recycling? And uh, and uh, and then, and I didn't even know there was a journal called Environment and Behavior for that matter. Uh, uh, like, like, how did this happen? And what was this all about? And, 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 and yeah. Tell me about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that really does go back. But I remember it well. I was uh, I was a graduate student, and this was in the late 60s. Okay. And a lot was going on in our country. And, mm. you know, more attention was being given to the environment um, than prior to the 60s. And um, I, I don't know how my interest and that particular thing really got started. I think mm -hmm. it was when I was in undergraduate school, I took a course in ecology, but sure. it seemed like an important thing. And I was in an environment um, at Florida State where one of the professors there, John Bailey, um, who most people now associate with his ethics book, mm -hmm. um, that he supervised students 
with their theses and dissertations, and several of his students were into it. Then it was really called behavioral community psychology. Mm. Uh, a lot of things fell under that. But one of the areas was in, you know, change people's behavior to increase recycling. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it, we were talking about that and one of his other students was interested. So we just kind of got together and decided we can do that. Um, you know, we can look at what can we do simply to change behavior to increase certain types of recycling. Um, and the intervention, as you just summarized in the title, is not rocket science, you know, <laughs> provide prompts, uh, reduce the response costs for recycling. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it was, I don't know, kind of a conglomeration of things and interested in the general topic, excitement about learning these new principles of behavior and how we can apply those to true areas of social significance. And, um, you know, I was a graduate student. I was single. Um, I had time. And so we we took it on. And um, I was actually really interested in uh, that whole at time, again, behavioral community psychology, which is what when I referred to Brandon Green earlier, he went on in that area quite a bit. Mm. Um, I did not. Um, mm-hmm. And in part. Just, <laughs> you know, show you my character. Uh, there weren't many jobs in that area. Fair enough. Um, and uh, I need to finish paying off my graduate school. There were jobs in IDD, and I'm glad I went that route. But I still have an interest in the, uh, you know, um, what behavior analysis is doing and what it's not doing in regard to some of our very – uh critical worldwide issues right now yeah really cool i mean uh, maybe i'll try to get uh scott geller on the show because he's oh yeah he he kind of did that work back then and kept doing it uh he found a way to pay the loans uh, and, and do that work so uh we'll have to maybe 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 pick his brain and see how that all that all came out well if but, you can get him to come on and do do this He's got tremendous knowledge, and he'll be very interesting. I can promise you that. Cool. Well, that, 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 that's a motivator for me. I'll definitely give it a go. Uh, engage in some uh, cold-calling behavior just for that. Thank you. Uh, anyway, it's a neat article, and if anyone wants to pick it up, I mean, I, I, I had a job working in a high school a couple of years ago, and you know, they they still don't know what where where to put the recycling bins, and there's still a mess everywhere. So I you know I really I really think um, you know uh, you know some of these basic sort of pieces um, um, you know can really be applied um, um, to those contexts. Really, really interesting chat today, Denny. I, I just just so many. We could have gone for hours. I mean, you've 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 put out so much research, and we could have easily. We only focused on a handful of our uh, of articles um, that um, you know I think were really powerful for me. And I'm going to share all those resources with folks. Uh, Denny sent me um, um, a copy of uh, of his most recent book that just came out called um, "Training Staff to Teach People with Severe Disabilities: A Practical, Evidence Based Approach for Quick Success." It's a really a really nice again super objective breakdown to basically how to set up a nice 
um, um, uh, teaching program um, uh, in, in, in the context of sort of, uh, you know, a community living agency, um, uh, because these places are still around. I mean, we, we thought maybe a lot of these places would go, you know, in favor of employment. But as long as I think we have folks with, you know, really severe um, levels of disability, we're still going to have uh, places like this that uh, that continue to need um you know uh th th this kind this kind of support in place so really nice book short thin short uh fits in your backpack uh, uh um and, and it really kind of goes through all, every, every sort of sort of piece required to kind of make a good training program and as does the whole series that uh reed parsons green have put out so uh highly recommend and we'll, we'll share all those so thanks again denny for being on the show real honor for me to to be able to kind of connect with you and and and, and have these conversations and uh, i hope other folks will uh will get something out of it uh if there's anything um kind of last things you kind of want to share with the audience or just uh say sayonara thanks so much well, uh, actually, thank you, Ben. I've enjoyed it. And you uh, really hit some important topics, very important, um, in a wide variety of areas. So I uh, admire what you're doing and trying to get some good word out there. So thanks a lot and take care.